the importance of doing right over being right, a conversation about racial injustices in our world and in the United Methodist Church with Bishop Julius Trimble and Dr. Carolyn Johnson on episode number 33 of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. When I'm saying Black Lives Matter, I need you to hear it as a plea. I need you to hear it that, I need you to hear it with the understanding that all lives matter. And all lives matter has a metric of all or nothing. If any one person's life is not mattering, then my belief that all lives matter isn't working. Welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People Podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. There is a moral intersection in our country and in our United Methodist Church on the matter of racial justice or injustice. This is a part of the conversation that we had today here on the United Methodist People podcast, episode number 33. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, and on the podcast today, Bishop Julius Tribble, the resident bishop of the Indiana area, invited Dr. Carolyn Johnson to be our special guest guest on being encouraged with Bishop Trimble. Dr. Johnson is the Associate Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Purdue University with responsibilities for diversity innovation in higher education. She's also involved with Black Methodists for Church Renewal and the United Methodist Women on a national level, as well as being an integral part of her local church, St. Andrews United Methodist in West Lafayette, Indiana. She brings a world of insight into our conversation today here on the United Methodist People podcast, where it is always our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and and commentary. We had a fascinating conversation here uh, today with Bishop Trimble and with Dr. Johnson, where we touched on the impact, we we went deep on the impact of the murder of George Floyd had in our country and in our church, and how that is a clarion call to deal with the matters of racism. We talked about the implications of that for our country and for our United Methodist Church, and how we can see racism through a new illuminating lens to no longer be observers, but to be participants in the cause of fighting for racial justice. We also had a conversation about understanding Black Lives Matter as a plea to be heard. Great conversation we had here today in the United Methodist People podcast. I know that you're going to enjoy listening to it. You can always listen to back issues, episodes of the United Methodist People podcast at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and also connect at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Great conversation here today on diversity, on racial injustice, our country, and the United Methodist Church with Bishop Trimble and Dr. Carolyn Johnson. Let's get into that conversation right now. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller back with you on the United Methodist People podcast, where we are looking to strengthen the connection through conversation and commentary and through all aspects of the United Methodist Church and how it integrates into our world. As per usual in many episodes or recent episodes, uh, Bishop Julius Tremble of the Indiana area is with us to share his thoughts and his words of encouragement. And on this day, he has asked a very special guest to be with us as we're going to be uh, tackling and delving into the issues of racism and regarding the church and to the situation of the world right now. And our special guest with us today is on the faculty at uh, Purdue University. Her name is Carol, Dr. Carolyn Johnson. She is the Associate Vice Provost for Diversity 
and inclusion at Purdue with many responsibilities regarding innovation in higher education at Purdue, which she extends to other walks of life as well, which includes her connections where she is involved with very in leadership with the Black Methodist for Church Renewal. She is a past president of United Methodist Women and is also involved with the University Senate, which has to do with higher education, and is a member of St. Andrew's United Methodist Church in West Lafayette, Indiana. And so we welcome to our podcast today, Bishop Tribble and Dr. Carolyn Johnson. Welcome, folks. Good morning. Good morning. It is awesome to have both of you with us here uh, today. And Bishop, and uh, you just came off a of vacation, spending some time with your grandchildren, and I did the, the same. It's one of the joys of our life. And uh, I want to hear one cool thing about your granddaughter before we get started in our conversations. <laughs> There's a lot. There are a lot of cool things about our Corinne is her name, Corinne, and she uh, she is uh, very much uh, into hospitality, so she will uh, force you to say hello if you don't. And I, I think that's maybe a lesson we could probably learn from from children who who don't start off with bias or prejudice. It doesn't matter how tall or short you are, or what color you are. If riding in the in a, on her little push bike that we have, or we're in a grocery store. She will wave and say hi and expect you to say hi back. That's one cool thing about Korea. Right. Well, Dr. Johnson, we are so glad to have you with us. And one of the things I always like to do when we have a guest with us is to hear a little bit about your faith story, how you came to know Jesus in the first place and how you evolved into being very involved in the United Methodist Church. Do you mind just sharing a little bit of your story? I don't mind at all. I, I don't have a recollection of not knowing Jesus, so... Um, I grew up in a home that was uh, very much a Christian home, and I characterized it in, in kind of two ways. We, you know, these are the kind of old fundamental fuddy-duddy kind of things. Over the years, I, I appreciate it even more. I grew up where we did say grace at every meal. Everybody was on their knees at night for their prayer. That just was a normal way of growing up. So it does, and for me, over the years, I realized that it was the context and created an environment of understanding that there is, we don't belong to ourselves alone. We, we belong mm-hmm. to each other and we have responsibilities. My, my grandmother stayed at home. She was, you know, a homemaker. My mom was uh, a career woman, as was my dad. My grandfather was a Pullman porter. Interestingly enough, within everybody, there was always conversation about community responsibility, going to church. I mean, those are things that we just did. I don't know that I I appreciated it as much in my later, in my early years as I did in my later years uh, of what that of what that meant. But most importantly, the two things that I think it did in my faith journey was I do remember the day in church one day, and I always thought about John Wesley because I felt like, now I didn't create a whole new movement, but I did have a day where my heart was, was and I felt that need to uh, to move forward in the congregation to say, I want to give my life to Christ. So that, I, I hope I've done that. You know, uh, I, I do think that knowing is a matter of knowing more deeply and more fully as you continue to mature. I hope I've matured, I think, but that's a never-ending process. Have just such appreciation for that and even greater appreciation for people who come to know Christ after having not having known. Any way that we come to have Christ as the Lord of our life, I think, is, and all of those stories help us begin to have some glimpse of how we understand God acting in, in our world and in our, our life. But the commonality, and, and I... Um, had a one of our administrators one time was saying something that had stuck with me. She would never have said that she was a theologian by any means ever, you know. And I don't know even that she was a Christian, but she said one day that how important it was for her and for us to be able to make sure that we could build on the promises for which we've been organized. Wow, wow. And then uh, and so that into. To, to be able to build on and deliver on, and deliver on the promises reminds me so much that that is uh, how we how we're charged to live our lives to really believe that we stand on those promises that God delivers on those promises and those and that in each of our lives there, there is a peace we can articulate and for me and with my family I hope it was to to be able to live a life that in the realities of race and racism, that life would not be marked by resentment. You know, it, it would not be that it would, 
there would be nothing that would impede someone understanding where we, how we saw ourselves in terms of God working in our lives. And so that wasn't always going to be happy or joyful. We have, we, we like many families, have a whole list of, of things that have happened. And it doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're too righteous and you're not angry, but it does mean that it will not have the final word over how God lives. Yeah, we, we choose how we react to the circumstances of life, which is what we're going to get into here. And you, in your life, have integrated the education world and theological and your ministry world in such a way that it comes into play. And just say a little word about what, what you're involved with now. You are on the faculty at Purdue with, uh, with responsibilities and cultural diversity, with uh, racial and cultural diversity, and involved with the church in these areas. And just share, share a little bit of what you do now. Okay, as an administrator, uh, my role particularly is to, as I said, now work with the Office of the Provost in the Division of Diversity and Inclusion, and also affiliated faculty in African American Studies. Uh, so my work is very heavily around resourcing, connectivity, almost sounds Methodist, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, mobilizing con- our connection. being Mobilizing the connection, yes. For action and effectiveness. And right now we have a, a major emphasis on maximizing student potential and actually maximizing them. And that's really one of the things about diversity uh, period is how do we maximize potential faculty, staff, and students and understand that inclusiveness is not really just about having everybody at the table. I mean, it's really kind of easy to have those kind of kind of statements almost the way we do means. But the reality is that if we we have if we believe that uh, each person in the academy, as well, we believe that each person in life has gifts, and particularly uh, now we're thinking about scholarly intellectual gifts, that we would be doing a disservice to our whole organizational life, our whole intellectual life, not to be able to find a way to utilize all of those in pursuit of greater knowledge. Uh, I think one of the places for me that the connectivity happens in my work life and my religious life is that I really do fundamentally believe that education is really being able to have you have new ways of thinking, that you have new ways of acting, that you're thinking and you're acting. And so if, if I'm going to be not even just a better actor, but the best actor I can be, then I really need to be able to expand and not be afraid of thinking, utilize thinking, because thinking is a great, I do believe thinking is a great thing. Yeah. We need to stretch ourselves and fire off some new neur- neurons instead of just the old ones we've been doing all the time. And it does some awesome things that you're involved with. You're involved with your with your local church, United Methodist Women, all kinds of things you're involved with. But I wanted to see how we can integrate that into some conversation about what's going on in our world right now. We're speaking here, uh, Bishop and Dr. Johnson, on uh, according to this on the 23rd of June, 2020, and just a month ago, a little more than a month ago, four weeks ago. I believe it was the 24th of May, a terrible tragedy happened, and a man by the name of George Floyd was was uh, killed by police in Minneapolis. And it just seems like the world has changed dramatically in these last four weeks. And I'd just like to get your take from both of you about how has the world changed in the last four weeks, or has it? And it's like your take on what's going on in the world right now when it comes to these matters of racial justice or injustice. Well, uh, let, let me start it out and... And pass it on to Dr. Johnson. I, I don't know. I, I I think the record, the jury is out, if you will, on whether the world has changed. The fact that George Floyd's murder on video has become an international story and international trauma, if you will. When you think about it, they were protesting in Syria. I mean, just just meditate on that for a while. They yeah. were protesting the, the killing of George Floyd in Syria. And I, several years ago, we were in Germany. My wife and I were in Germany. We met refugees who were in Germany who had fled Syria because of how traumatic it was for life in Syria. So if, if uh, I don't know, someone said as many as uh, 100 countries, it's almost like the, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the globe. The death of George Floyd has gone much more than a national story. Some would argue, and, and I would be amongst those who said it's, a st- it's, it's only because of the video that response has taken the course that it has, in part because there were a lot of George Floyds that we just don't have the video of 
what happened. Or in many cases, the, the report is that in, in Minneapolis, uh, 44 persons had been had a similar experience in which they passed out, but they didn't die. So it's, uh, it's the, maybe the world has changed. I pray that this is another window, another opportunity that God is giving Christians, United Methodists, and, and people of, who just care about the human family an opportunity for us to take steps forward to what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. referred to and others. I, I think Jesus first, <laughs> the beloved community. Yes, very good. Dr. Johnson, uh, I just basically asked you the same thing. How has the world changed or not in the last month? Oh, I think a lot of ways. I would say I'm going to deal particularly, I think I've been interrogating myself on how have I changed. Mm -hmm. And in one of the places where the world and I have changed together is that I know the name George Floyd. We've got a name, yes. We have a name. This is a person. Which which has led to other names, right? We've been more aware of other names as well. That's true, but for me, it's just that I know his name. Yeah. That in the course of things, there was probably no reason for me to ever know George Floyd. You know, and I feel I feel so similarly with this the way I do with sometimes even memorial services at conferences and things. Sometimes I read in obituaries. Sometimes it is in a person's death that you realize how much their life was, their struggles and their joys. But I would never have known that name, probably George Floyd, and now he's in my mind forever. I, I find myself, some of the ways that, uh, I don't necessarily say I've changed the ways that it's touched me is that, and some of these are things that just make me mad sometimes too, sure. and is that, and sad. And so one of the sad ones is I heard one of the newscasters the other day say something that I just started bawling. And it won't seem like it's that big a deal, but it was, I guess, for me at that moment, because he said, when the gentleman, George Floyd, was killed. And I thought, oh yeah, the gentleman. Well, he becomes a gentleman because of the way he died. So but so it, are it, you saying that was the, the terminology of respect and dignity that the, the came with it? That he, the, the respect that came with death that was not offered in life. How many people will we miss the opportunity of thinking of them as the gentleman when we have the other things as the, the, the activist or the terrorist? I mean, all these kind of things that we want to say about the protesters. Or the, and how do, we, how do we accord and find ourselves a way to understand the, the, how God sees us, not in terms of just our actions, uh, the goodness and badness of our actions, but just who we are. I keep, and I, there's something that says um, for me, all of the things, why did it have to be your death before we could unpreciousness of your life? And so, and so, yeah, I think the world has changed. I yeah. think, I think it's changed in the sense that our lenses are different. You know, it, it is very much like, for the, and I'll see both of you have glasses on. You know what it's like when you don't have your glasses on? Enable the, the world, the very world you look at is the same world. With your glasses off, it's kind of fuzzy, and you may be able to navigate familiar territory. With your glasses on, it's much differently. When you get new glasses, you can see even more. You're not as aware of how badly you couldn't see. I think every time that we have one of these, this is like putting on a fresh pair of lenses to help us see what was already in front of us, what was already there, but maybe we didn't see it and understand it in the way. So we, we have a fresh new opportunity to act on these new insights that we see, you know, sights and insights. And so I would say that, and the, the you know, we hear a lot of things that many people say, well, you know, they're glad that it's, it's more, uh, more diverse and people who, who were upset, you know, there's so, you know, more activity, youth, but, uh, and all those things are, are fine. I think, though, it is a time where each of us, too, and I guess that's where I am in this particular incident, is try to really dig deep to say, what does this mean to me? Mm-hmm. It's interesting to use this. Now. No, I'm finished. Yeah. I'm just interested in your analogy about the glasses, and certainly I'm that way. If I don't have my glasses, I, I'm just exactly what you say. I have a hard time functioning. I really have a hard time reading, for instance, if I have my glasses on. I'm just wondering, and it just is just, you know, I'm just a, you're, I'm just a uh, 61-year-old white man who's speaking here now. Are the glasses different now for white folks than they are for black folks in terms of the illumination that has happened? Is there anything, any nuances here that you are seeing that we can learn from? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Well, so let me go back to what you said. Are are they different? Yeah. I think they are. I don't know that the, you know, glasses tend to be tailored for what you need. Okay. 
And so uh, that's what I think we're seeing now that I, that it, I mean, maybe a little differently is that. Let me, let me go back a different way to kind of say this. And that is, I was in a project in the Middle East. One of the, the clergymen who I was having to speak to was in the Syrian church. And he said to me, you know, one of the things that upsets me sometimes when I'm dealing with North America is that you, you know the birth and you know the resurrection and you know the crucifixion, and then you jump to the Reformation. And did you ask what was happening in the church for all those decades? Yeah, there's a it's not several one, thousand not. years there of a lot of pain and, and agony and abuse and, and all so kinds of things. That, I think that's one of the things that two different lenses, perhaps, for maybe African-Americans and maybe others, in that it's easy if it's not your group to see each of these at incident, you know, so... You may have had Eric Gardner in six in fourteen, and then now you have this. So you you can pick out any 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 one of these things. For I think for many African Americans, it's one continuous line, and so it's it's an unbroken line, which makes it seem as though it was just yesterday, you know. And that because sometimes when we talk about our diversity, it really is about our lived experiences. It's where do our lived experiences intersect, you know, with our perspectives. And so oftentimes the perspectives of what you may think of as rage or other things come from this long, unbroken line of racial, from almost racial terrorism to racial prejudice, to racial discrimination, to racial dismissal, to racial equity, all the things racial. So it does seem like it is a, a bold underscoring of why don't they, why do they always talk about race? Well, <laughs> we always talk about race because it, it doesn't take a holiday for us. Not that we would, you know, we're proud of our race, but, but the, the, these, these incidents, you may have one or two or three that pop up that give a lot of attention, but they're always incidents every single day and that, that are happening. And so then that's one piece. I think maybe for whites, it's the having to wrestle with a very difficult piece. And that is, when is the collectivity of whiteness affecting me as a white person, you know? And so that we, we, we talk a lot about our comfort levels of when it's comfortable talking about, oh, Blacks do this and Blacks do that. And then sometimes the Black person will say, oh, well, wait a minute, I, I do have an individual life too. Sure, you know? sure. And then we have the same thing that will happen twice, but it will be, I'm, I don't, I may have less of a comfort in any negative pieces that are attributed to whites. So I'm an individual, so exit me out of that. We find is, and I think this is what helps us as Christians, I, uh, I've said to a group a time or two, probably the hardest thing for me as a child, and I have to admit, even sometimes as an adult, is confession. It wasn't that I don't, my, I don't, I know, it's not the act of confession. It's when I'm, when I'm in a confession where we're reading a confessional, as a community, which we, we do. And it will be the great we. We admit, we do this, and I'm thinking, I didn't do those things. So I have to confess about those. We're a community and we're, we're, we're of a whole. So this ability to have to say, if we are a we the people, or we a community, or all these things that we have constituted ourselves, under the notion of being a we, then we carry jointly, we lift the burdens of being we as well as the recognitions of being an I. Mm, that awesome. is the, that is, you know, the, that's why I love preambles, even though the preamble itself is not the law, whether it's the preamble to the United Nations Constitution, the preamble to the United States Constitution, anything, but where we say, we think about the Constitution as our rules, but the Constitution is we say, this is how we are choosing to order ourselves. This is why we choose to be together. We are voluntarily being together to aim this purpose. And so in the Constitution, we start off right off the bat. We, it's not a collection of I, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. And then we lay out what we want to do in the, in the um, Constitution of the United Methodist Church. When we lay out that we are a community and we lay out almost right off the bat, I think it's Article 5, where we talk about, before we talk about why we are an inclusive, why we have constituted ourselves to be inclusive. And then right after that, 
why racial justice is a part of how we are constituting ourselves to be. So I think as one of the things that helps me look with new lenses, which I hope is helping all of us look at new lenses, is why are we? Why have we constituted our denomination in the way we have? And we've constituted it to really say we are really see in our foremost the importance of racial justice is how we live out our lives as Christians. To not have that as a part of the way we live would be not to follow the mandate. So that it, our our concepts of justice are not additive and alternative. If you've dealt with every other issue and you have some time, go do a little racial justice work. Well, just some awesome, not- some yes. awesome comments there. And I think for some folks, this is a transition from seeing racism as a, a moment in time to a, a movement or a, 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 a way of life that is happening and that we're, and many of us are learning here in that process. And, and I really want to delve a little deeper in what you said about the United Methodist Church now in terms of, you know, what we say we are, what we are be about. But let's talk about our reality, uh, Dr. Johnson. Where are we at in our reality in our United Methodist world in terms of these racial issues? And what are we learning and where are we going with this? Yeah, one of the things I think about church that I love about our denomination particularly is that I will say uh, a poster from another denomination that I liked. It wasn't ours, but it was, and actually it was in the Episcopal poster seven years ago. And it said, the problem with churches that uh, have all the answers is they don't permit any questions. Oh, oh, wow. That one goes right to the heart, doesn't it? And given how so often Jesus would be teaching moment with a question. He did a lot of that, didn't he, Jesus? Did. Yeah, you know, and, and questions and inquiry are critical. I mean, they just absolutely are. That we're, we're always striving to be our best self. And so, which also means that if you're able to live with questions, you're also able to have one question is always say, are you really doing what you're supposed to do? And we won't be afraid of that question. We have a lot of questions that we have to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm. One is, how, what do we understand the role of leadership to be? Mm-hmm. You know, and particularly, I was, I was meeting with a, a group not too long ago who self, they self-referred to themselves as leaders in the denomination. And because they said they were leaders, they, was, they, they were leaders. I mean, I was okay. There you go. That that was who they said they were. But in fact, it was interesting because they were probably titled and they had a responsibility to exercise some leadership. Uh, But yet when it came to some of the classic aspects of leadership, knowing your organization, being able to take a risk, you know, all the the kind of being able to facilitate others. and to be, None of those things appeared to be present. Now, that's not to say they were bad people or any of those kind of things, but it means we have to constantly interrogate ourselves to see, are we utilizing the mm-hmm. tools that we have at our disposal? Are we looking at where are the gaps? How do we understand it? So uh, I Well, cr- credibility matters then is what I'm hearing you say. Matters. Credibility matters. Character matters. All those things matter in terms of seeing how and leadership is manifested. Exactly. I can't pronounce you a leader, you know. And so what happens is um, that we have to constantly keep saying to each other, let's see what what are we what is the foundations that we're building on? So I've been asking groups and particularly Methodist groups when I've I've been meeting. We've had lots of Zoom calls and all kind of conversations recently asking a couple of questions is what is the most important thing to you or what what did you find the most uh, moving as you looked at the history of racial justice in our denomination. And interestingly enough, and sadly enough, most knew that we had a history and that we've been doing things, but they couldn't point to a piece. Not have been the Charter for Racial Justice. I mean, just all kinds of... How about an- how about anecdotally? Could they even have a story uh, to tell? To some extent, but when I would say who... Who are your, and particularly what I've said to whites, and I've said to blacks too, because I think we have, who are some of your uh, and heroes and heroines, if you want to use both, both words in that way, who you think have been really leading the charge for racial justice? Who are the people in your life now that if we interviewed would identify you as one of those people? Do your family members know what you're, th- I mean, just kind of, you know, and they're not to be accusatory at all, but it's just to say that, Let's put it 
we talk a lot about mindfulness. Can we put back into our, our understanding of our leadership responsibilities, the responsibility to know our history so that we can utilize it as a tool as we can continue to deal with issues as they manifest themselves now. Well, and then you know where the gaps are. It comes a piece. Um, and the strategies, you know, the, and, and because we don't want to always just live in our past. Our past can be a wonderful way to see the future, but we can't, if we don't know what it is, we'll keep trying to answer yesterday's problems as opposed to today's. For me, that's one of the pieces that I've seen. The, the joyful parts are, again, the enthusiasm, back into this piece about inquiry. What I am hearing more than I've heard, I think, in all my, my time is a real sincerity around the question is, what can I do? How do I, how do I know what can I do? Not even as much as what should I do, but what can I do? Or I want to do something. You know, are you seeing this happening? Bishop, I'll ask you and Dr. Johnson as well. Are we seeing this happening? Are we seeing an uptick awareness and in action in integration in, you know, not only let's not only admire our history and our Wesleyan background and even our structural things, but are we seeing an uptick in, in involvement, engagement, and let's get something done in our church? Bishop, I'll ask you that question. I think uh, what I've seen is at least an honest acknowledgement of, of historical ignorance and a desire, actually, a, a desire to actually, for, for on the part of many people, to say, you know, I, I just didn't, I didn't know. Uh, and this is about our church as, as as much as it is about American history. Uh, and you know, American history is fraught with uh, violence uh, and anti-blackness. You know. From its inception, previously people seemed to want a four-minute conversation, or at most a forty-minute conversation on race and racism. When you're dealing with a four hundred-year-old story, so how do you have a four-minute conversation or a four-minute, forty-minute tutorial? So now I'm I'm at least encouraged that people really want to not live uh, at the intersection of ignorance and white fragility, or whatever else is the new new term that people are embracing. That people actually, as Dr. Johnson said, you know, are asking, what is it that I need to be learning? What is it that I need to be doing? And, and I think we ought to, that's part of, that ought to be part of our prayer life as well. You know, uh, God, what is my assignment in this moment in history? And a part of that process, I'll ask both of you, what are, what are some of the questions? What are some of the teachings that uh, perhaps uh, white folks should be hearing but are not still hearing? from the movement that's happening here now. What are we, what do, uh, what is being said but not heard? Well, one, one thing for me is that racism is is not the figment of the imagination of African-Americans. Uh, so people saw the death of George Floyd, like, well, is this something that really, really happens? Uh, you know, I, I, I sit, I've sat at dinner tables with police officers who are members of my family, but I've also, before we had cell phones and, and they had body cameras, I've also been a, black man who is racially profiled uh, and handcuffed and sat on a curb. Uh, and you probably want to know what I did wrong. And the answer is being black <laughs> with two brothers who were black in a car. Uh, and we just were in the wrong neighborhood and must've been doing something wrong. So, you know, but part there's hit the pause there for a second, but that that's a relatively common experience. Is it not? It among- is. When I was pastoring a local church, Brad, I asked him one Sunday in a sermon series I was doing, I said, how many people in here who have family members or themselves have had an, an unfortunate or negative experience with law enforcement uh, or not necessarily law enforcement, but people at a racial incident when you were racially profiled or you faced the possibility of being injured or the loss of life? essentially for being black and 80% of the people in the congregation, women and men, either they had, themselves had had a negative experience or they had sons or daughters or husbands who had mm-hmm. uh, a negative experience. So it's not, it's not like I, we wake up every day worried about, you know, the, the, the cost of being black. Uh, Cause you know, I'm glad God created diversity and I'm glad to, uh, that, I, that I am who I am, but it's not people are like, when people act as though they're shocked, 
I said, well, you know, really all you have to do is really study American history or world world history, and uh, we really we really shouldn't be in this uh, uh, sense of ignorance. And I think some of it is 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 kind of a, a choice that we've made. Yes. Uh, yes. So that's why I'm a big proponent of education at every level. Well, that's what certainly what Dr. Johnson is involved with education at every level. But I would be interested in your take, Dr. Johnson, on this basic question: what are uh, what are white folks not hearing that we should be hearing out of this? I think perhaps not hearing as well, and it's hard to speak in this kind of broad piece, but that the it's not an accusation necessarily against you personally in the in this sense that racism is and that Bishop Trimble, thank you so much. I mean racism is real. It is not a made up phenomena. It's not a matter of being emotionally too sensitive. I mean it is it is absolutely real. And a part of its realness is that it is so entrenched that it doesn't appear visible all the time. It, you, you can, it, it's such a normal part of the way that you work until you stop doing it. I mean, and so as a result, what tends to happen is, so here's an example, and the issue around blame, that when we identify it and we identify something like white privilege, that all of a sudden you have to ask yourself, I think if you're, if you're a white person, I mean, if you're a black person, but you have to ask yourself, why are there certain phrases that just bother me so? And why are there certain actions that people do that just bother me so? And that kind of, you know, it was interesting when uh, when the athlete was taking the knee. And yes. uh, for me, knees were always associated with either humility or praying or this, that, and the other. So when he took the knee, it never thought that it was a it was an act of humility and protest in humility, and then to hear all this stuff about you know hating the country and the flag and I'm like wow where did that come from? So this issue of maybe let me distill it this way: sometimes it appears for for all of us we have some great misunderstandings about why we do what we do or what that means. I think having to, I would, I do that for myself is when I see this happening, why does that bother me? Or why am I attributing that to whiteness? Am I attributing that to something that's been set up systemically? Uh, is that an issue about blame? And those are the pieces that I think where we, 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 we really come so close to almost say, I just want this to go away. Do you think perhaps, I'll just put an example out there. When the term is used, Black Lives Matter, for some folks, it is a call to uh, action. It's a call to uh, process. And for other folks, among some white folks, it's offensive. They'll say things like Mm -hmm. all lives matter and things like this, which is offensive to some other folks. Is this part of what we're talking about here, trying to understand language, understand terminology, understand how we see things? Exactly. So that if you say, I think it's the question, let me give you a different kind of little story. When you tell, can you tell me how do most fairy tales end? Prince and the princess get together, everything happily ever after, right? Exactly. And oftentimes in most fairy tales, they do live happily ever after. They don't necessarily get married. Soon they do. So when when, stu- when people tell a fairy tale back again, they will always say they got married and lived happily ever after. That's not always in the story, but you add it in because that, you know, I mean, until you go back, you go like, oh, the same thing with uh, our stories with our Christmas carols. You know, we, we, many people will tell you the Christmas story based on the Christmas carols, not on the actual Christmas story. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that because what we tend to have happen is what is it that you hear when you hear? So when I hear Black Lives Matter, I'm hearing it as a plea. I'm hearing it. We do emails, you don't hear them. But when I'm saying Black Lives Matter, I need you to hear it as a plea. Yes. I need you to hear it that, I need you to hear it with the understanding that all lives matter. And all lives matter has a metric of all or nothing. If any one person life is not mattering, then my belief that all lives matter isn't working or isn't operating. So I have to, you know, going after the one sheep, going after the one group. So I, I want to hear the plea or, or Black Lives Matter too. Or, you know, so it's a plea. 
someone else may hear Black Lives Matter as if to saying that Black Lives Matter to the exclusion of everybody else. So when we interrogate ourselves, this, why am I hearing words that aren't there? Why am I hearing intent that's not there? And so when we have things, when we're looking at any kind of issues, but particularly racism, even say, you know, racism, what you start to look for are patterns. When does something like all lot, when, when is the insertion of greater mindfulness appear only to be happening when I say Black Lives Matter? I can hear people do all kinds of things around other issues and topics and never insert the reminder to remember that all health conditions matter. So if I'm talking about heart disease, well, you know, but it also matters if I have a neurological piece. I don't hear that. Or if I'm talking about, you know, we need to have uh, housing for the home, you know, we need quality housing for a lot. The, the all this only seems to come in, or it appears to only come in at the conversation when we're talking about Black Lives Matter. Yes. And okay. so, yeah, all lives matter. And, it's the, and so here's the other piece where I think it's the difference in the hearing. The fact that all lives matter is the mandate to address the fact that Black lives matter. Someone okay. else will hear all lives matter, which is the mandate to not deal with Black lives matter. Hmm. And that's where we are. That's, that's, that's a big conceptual divide. If we flipped it the other way, is to say, well, would you rather for me to say Black lives don't matter? But just, uh, this divide, this conceptual divide you're talking about is part of our challenge, isn't it? You know, it's part, it's of, part our, of our challenge. Part of our challenge in the, in the church and in society as part of the systematic change we've been talking about. It's all and, wrapped in there. And one last piece, part of the problem is too that, you know, history and our lives are, it's fluid, it's dynamic. And so, uh, you know, you, if you are a fisher person or what, any kind of thing we have, in any moment that my, where my life exists, there are things that are there before I, before I was born or before I came into play. And, you know, I, I think about that issue, like if you're looking at a stream and you see something in the water that shouldn't be in there, and it might be, you know, you didn't put it in there. It floated from a different place. You may try to get it out and you may be able to reach in and get a piece of it out, but can't get the whole thing out. Or, and it may keep floating down, down the river or down the stream. It doesn't mean that I have to take the blame for it being there. But what it does mean is that I need to take some, if I could, take some responsibility and accountability for trying to get it, get it removed. Awesome. And so I think the idea of uh, do I have to, is it more important to do right or to be right? Mm. We have a lot of things. I said, for me now, I'm 20 years ago, I was in one spot in terms of the way my activity level for, for addressing. Now what I, I really try to do is also to say to people, I need you to be a better thinker. I need you to interrogate yourself. The best thing I... I the best thing you can do to help me, because I've had a lot of people who would call, I want you to know that I'm in solidarity with your pain. And that makes me even in more pain because you're telling me that you recognize that I probably am sad because a member of my community not there any longer. And I appreciate that. And the, But the other part of that is you're not sad that a member of your community is not with you anymore. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. That That's that powerful. George is George is mine, but not yours. Yeah. And that that you you want to be so the other analogy kind of thing. I'm just, so be in grief for you instead of with you. Yes. Okay. And that they're not grieving themselves. That's that's what I mean. It's it's not and a part that, of my uh, my experience. So and so now my 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 angers and my my wish for myself is that I, what I need for a person to be for me is to decide that they're not going to be an observer in the audience of this this play and oh, somehow a, that they have observer status so they're going to observe all these things but they're not an actor no there is no there is no conversation around Black Lives Matter. There's no conversation about racial justice that exits you out. How can you know? So it's just, this is this, the, this is the work and the, that we have to do. And in our last couple minutes together, I did I always like to really ask you, Dr. Johnson, and and then for for you, Bishop, to uh, bring us home here in this minute. But Dr. Johnson, what do you see in the midst of all this we're going through? A lot of people would say it's turmoil. The 
you know, the marches in the streets and we need systematic changes. So on a lot of it's kind of ugly and a lot of it's very all painful. What do you see as signs of encouragement or hope that is coming out of this? Oh, lots, 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 lots of things. Uh, one came from a young woman who was, uh, you may have seen her video where she, she's just angry. I mean, she's, you know, all the things we talk about, anger and rage. And then she says at the end, you better be glad that, uh, that we want equality and not revenge. That's an interesting plea because, again, that if there's anything that for people to hear is that the, the strive is to find a way that that's a, that's a word of grace, isn't it? Right there. It yes. is. It is. It's not about revenge. It's not about taking from whites. It's not about a wholesale blamer. You know, we need people to protect and serve. I mean, the fact that somebody's called to protect and serve, we just need you to do it in the way that truly protects and serves. Yeah. <laughs> without so, with, so without be, hope, being harmful, do no harm, as we've said before. Yeah. So, so the biggest hope for me, which is going to sound very strange, but it was something I had heard someone say years ago during the time when we had the Rodney King riots. And, you know, mm-hmm. the riots, yes, uh, not I riots, but the, and I have to check myself on riots because again, you know, we had riots after football games, but those, you know, I don't hear the same thing in the destruction. But anyway, back. I digress. And and one of the things he said was, he talked about apathy. And he said, you know, it's really the good part about this is that to know once again that there are some people who have the moral capacity to be outraged and see an injustice. And it is from that capacity that we will seek to say no more. And so we've had a lot of those in our, in our, our time as people together and each time we've taken one more thing and put it in the no more category and really work to make that happen so, so we're, we're at least lots of, lots of some some movements in the right direction and that's hopeful and bishop treble what do you have to share with us and maybe you can bring us uh kind of conclude our conversation with a encouraging thought or a word of hope and, and maybe pray for us well uh, i i borrowed from the words of Bishop Desmond Tutu, I I remain a prisoner of hope. Uh, and uh, I think Jane Elliott said, hope is holding on to positive energy. And I always get positive energy when, I, when I'm in the presence of Dr. Carolyn Johnson. And, oh. and she, once again, has not disappointed. I've, I've got enough notes here for three more sermons. Yes. <laughs> so I count that. You know, it's interesting how you're, you were making reference to Black Lives Matter. And I would invite Christians to when you hear that, read 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and reflect on that as you're hearing Black Lives Matter. You know, you, you, know, you know the text, you know, yeah. and I, can, I cannot say to an ear that I'm not important, a knee cannot say to a leg. And that's essentially, uh, I think, how Jesus probably would use it in terms of really pay attention to, to the lessons in the Bible. We have all the right words in our church and in our Christian witness. So I think I would like to extend the challenge to all who who are followers of Christ, what does it mean to really be a Christian in this moment in history? And what does it mean to be Wesleyan or United Methodist? And Brad, you know it, I've heard you say it too, you know, when we re- when we recite our baptismal vows or our yes. membership vows, we say on behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world and repent of your sin, our sin? You accept the freedom and power God gives you. Listen to this. This is what we say once we to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. So it's interesting. Uh, I was I, I posted this in, in on Facebook. You know, maybe Colin Kaepernick, and when he took his knee, was really trying to save George Floyd's life. Oh my goodness! Wow. There's a sermon right there. We <laughs> would not have had the experience of George Floyd. So I, I think it's, uh, uh, I just heard a great quote. It's more important, Dr. Johnson said, to do right uh, than to be right. And I learned that from my grandfather. And I didn't know we had so much in common. My father was a Pullman porter. Uh, oh, my goodness, yeah. We have to talk about that at some point. In fact, I received a little check until I, when I went through college from uh, railroad retirement. Railroad retirement. And my mother, my mother, who's 97, still gets a benefit from railroad retirement because my father was a Pullman. But I think people of faith, really, this is a, 
as someone said, we're at a moral intersection, uh, and we can be uh, we can be observers, as Dr. Johnson said, or we can be participants. And, and I still think uh, pursuing the beloved community is a worthy is a worthy goal for all of us who are followers of Christ. And I just like to close by saying, God bless everyone across the globe, and those who may hear this podcast know that you are worthy because God has said so. It is not subject to debate. In Jesus' name, Amen. I really want to encourage you to keep a copy of this podcast somewhere in your files. And we have a transcript on our website, unitedmethodistpodcast.com, for you to refer to it. Just a great conversation with Bishop Trimble and Dr. Carolyn Johnson that can be used as a great resource and lots of just beautiful thoughts and gems that we can apply to the matters of racial injustice, whether it be in a local church setting in our communities, in our country, whatever setting we're in, we need to speak into this. Key thing that I picked up on here today that I really want to share with you is the importance of doing right over being right. We have to be uh, learners in this process. We have to ask good questions of inquiry and know that this is a moral intersection for our country and for our church, which is absolutely pivotal for us. That's what we're here to do in the United Methodist People podcast. You can always go to our website, unitedmethodistpodcast.com, for more information and back episodes of the podcast, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. My name is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. It is my pleasure to be your host on this program and hope that you'll join us again next time as we have more important conversations to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. Our focus today was about the importance of doing right over being right. It reminded me so much of the words of John Wesley, which I leave you with today. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. And always do all the good you can.